This afternoon, we have the privilege to be able to have a conversation with four of the original founding board members of Founders Ministries. As you all know, this year is the 40th anniversary of Founders Ministries. You know, we, Founders Ministries didn't come into existence when it started, or when it did by what standard. Uh, it's been around for quite some time. Before I was walking this green earth, Founders existed. Um, and so this is a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to have this conversation with these four brothers to talk about the history and not in order to praise Founders Ministries, but to remember the Lord's grace and the Lord's favor as he's used Founders Ministries for these past 40 years. So give our panelists a big hand and a round of applause. So I, I suppose we should probably start off, uh, in case not everyone knows who is sitting up here, we have Dr. Tom Nettles, Bill Askell, Dr. Fred Malone, and then this other guy sitting down here on the end, some of you guys may know him, Dr. Tom Askell, uh, four of the original founding uh, board members of Founders Ministries. And I have a few questions, because I wasn't around when this thing started. Um, first, I want to know how you guys all came to be connected, how you came to know each other. And so uh, maybe you first, Bill, how did you come to know Tom? Well, I feel like I've known Tom Askell all my life, <laughs> all his life at least. So uh, we met one another. I had Tom Nettles for uh, his first church history or Baptist history class at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, that was been 1977, 78, 76. All right. And so I had him, and so we met, and through some interesting circumstances he may want to reference later, we became really uh, close to one another, good friends. Uh, then I, when I graduated, I told Tom Askell, I said, when you get to Southwestern, take everything you can from Tom Nettles. And if he teaches basket weaving, take basket weaving from, <laughs> from Tom Nettles. And so we've known one another for 40-something years, Tom Nettles and I have. He recommended me to the church that I ended up serving at when I left Southwestern, Broadmoor Baptist Church, as assistant pastor there. So we've maintained that relationship. Then while I was away at Broadmoor and Tom Askell was at Southwestern, Fred was there, I think, working on your Ph.D. at that time. Then these guys got together with Ernie Reisinger and through the providence of God determined it's time to to look into the possibility of starting something in the light of what God's bringing back the doctrines of grace among us. So I got invited over to the meeting. Uh, I was not on campus when all this happened. And uh, so it's just a wonderful story. You talk about uh, the Lord making some really powerful licks with crooked sticks. I mean, I, I didn't know what in the world I was doing. Uh, I was simply invited to a meeting because I happened to know a couple of the people involved. Uh, and was starry-eyed the whole time. And we've just been amazed through the years. God's been very good. He, he knitted us together uh, through a common commitment to uh, historical Baptist theology and unfolded the rest. I'm, I'm interested, though, how many of you sitting here were at the first Founders Conference? Stand up if you were at the first Founders Conference. That's amazing. That's amazing. Amen. What year was that? 1983. Mm -hmm. 1983. Yeah. In Memphis, Tennessee. And the first meeting that you had was in 1982. Yeah. Somebody uh, paint a picture for us what that meeting, how that came about, why you guys decided to meet, and then how that transpired. We had all <laughs> gone to a, a, a Banner of Truth meeting the year before, nine months before, something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Fred, were you with us? Did you? Yeah, <clears throat> we, we got on a bus from Broadmoor Baptist Church that Bill brought over. And we all went to this Banner of Truth meeting. And on the way up there, we drove all night. Robert Martin was with us also. And we were listening to Willie Nelson singing On the Road Again. <laughs> <laughs> and we got there and Al Martin and Ernie Reisinger met us on campus and said, I guess you guys have been solving all the difficult theological problems of the world. And we said, we've been listening to Willie Nelson singing. <laughs> and, I guess there was a little tone of disappointment that, but there were so many, there were so many Baptist people there that at that Banner of Truth conference, we got into a room and mm -hmm. we talked. Y'all remember yeah, that? Yep. Where we had maybe 15 or 20 Baptists that were at the conference. And we, we began to think about the possibility of having such a, a Baptist group like that. Uh, and then it was right after that that I moved to, to Memphis, Tennessee, and Ernie was getting letters from people who were becoming Calvinists, and I was getting letters and phone calls, and these guys were in contact with others who were asking questions uh, just about this theology because it was something that was very little known in Southern Baptist life in those days. And so I, had, I told Ernie, I said, you've got experience in this, let's, let's plan a conference. And so he said, okay, we will. When can we meet? And I said, well, I'm going to be in Texas. I, went, I was speaking at J.W. Baker's church down in South Texas. And uh, I said, I can stop in Dallas on the way because that's close to Fort Worth. And uh, we know that Fred, Ben Mitchell, and Tom were there. Close to Shreveport, Bill came over with R.F. Gates, an unknown quantity to everybody, but one of the most delightful persons that you could ever meet in his exuberance and love for the doctrines of grace and evangelism and all of those things. And so we met in this uh, motel in, uh, there in Dallas. Yeah. Hey, Fred, why don't you talk about the Boyce Project that was really yeah. behind all of this Exactly. As well. yeah. yeah. I appreciate you mentioned. I was going to bring that up. Uh, back in uh, 1977, uh, Ernie Reisinger, uh, who was... Uh, from Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, had been pastoring in Isla Mirada, Florida. And this church up in uh, Pompano Beach, Florida, um, called him Pompano Beach Baptist Church to be the pastor. And so he came in and he started a book table and started, one of Ernie's passions was to pass out books, especially to young men. Uh, and... Um, and so uh, I joined him there uh, in 77, and uh, a man in the church named Bill Manise uh, had some money, and he wanted to do something to reach Southern Baptist pastors and students uh, that they would know about the history of the theological history of Baptists. So he funded the project to print, reprint James Pettigrew Boyce's Abstracts of Systematic Theology. He was the founding president of Southern Seminary and taught theology there till about 90, I mean, what was it, 58 to 1892. Yeah. And uh, I wrote the introduction, and Ernie got all those books and contacted the seminary presidents, six Southern Baptist seminary presidents, and wanted to give this book to every graduate of the seminary. Hold that up to you. Huh? Hold it up. Okay. And... Uh, 
you know, I don't think they knew what they were getting into, but they thought, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll give a historical book to our graduates. So Ernie uh, went off and, and he had several seminaries. I had a couple to go to. And we handed out this book if they would answer questions about reading the book. Well, some of them just took it and just put it on their library shelf and never did, but they started writing back to Ernie. And there were, there were many letters about, I mean, I've never heard this before. I just went through Southern Seminary or Southwestern Seminary. I've never heard about Baptist having Reformed and Calvinistic theology. And that just grew to the point that um, Ernie, uh, uh, after I'd probably gone, not, yeah, about 1980, I'd already gone to Southern, to Southwestern Seminary to start on a PhD. And, and uh, he kept getting all of these letters and contacts and phone calls. And I think that moved him to say, we need a conference um, where men can be exposed to the doctrines of grace, to the Reformed faith, to the law and the gospel, to church government, church discipline, all those things. So Ernie was kind of the mover behind that. And um, I've always looked at founders having a connection through Ernie to Grace Baptist Church, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which was one of the great churches uh, around at that time with Pastor Walter Chantry as pastor. So Reformed Baptists of different groups had influence in starting uh, the meeting for founders, but I guess that's all, Thomas. So, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say all that mentioning that it shows the intricacies of of divine providence and putting yeah. so many people together in so many different ways from so many different backgrounds and all the little nuances of, of things that come together. And now what we've got a conference here with 2000 people or something. And it's, it's all related providentially. All these networks are a, a, a display of the amazing wisdom of God and how unlikely things uh, happen in God's uh, purpose. I think it's a great witness to God's magnificent wisdom in this. So in 1982, you all gathered together uh, for a prayer meeting. Who was there? I joined late. Uh, that was the one day of the year that Broadmoor Baptist Church made all staff members come to the church on Saturday for half a day. So I didn't get to fly in, and so I missed the prayer meeting time, but I got in after, after lunch. So I was, I was late, and I brought RF Gates with me uh, to the consternation of some in the room that were nameless uh, because they were not personally invited. I just brought him along with me because I thought, this guy's got to see this. So. <laughs> so, so the four of us were there. Ben Mitchell was there. Um, RF. and Was, it was Bob Martin there? No. No, uh, Bob Ernie. Martin. So seven of us. Seven of us were there. And we had breakfast together. Yep. And uh, Ernie ordered eggs. <laughs> and he said, I want them basted. Do you know, you know what I mean by basted eggs? And the little waitress said, oh, yeah, yeah. And we came back, and they were all chopped up and hard. And I guess she thought he meant busted, busted eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't pleased with that. Uh, yeah, so we, we prayed and sang and um, read psalms for the morning, and then the other guys came in after that, and we basically just said, what do we do? What do we do? How do we steward what we're seeing going on? And from that, I think Ernie had already prepared an agenda, I believe, for the meeting. Ben led the meeting, 
and it was decided, let's have a conference. Tom was to look at Memphis because you just moved there. Forget who else was looking at uh, possible venues, but wound up Rhodes College would be a good venue. So we planned it for July or August, I think, of 1983. You remember the name you suggested for the conference? Well, I'm, I think it was the Southern Baptist Conference on the Faith of the Founders. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that, that was actually, <laughs> that was mercifully shortened, shortened to the Founders Conference yeah. after a couple of years. Yeah. Now, I wasn't there, well, but I have read the minutes. Someone took the minutes. I think you, you guys made the young guy take the minutes, right? That guy over there. And uh, I think the original name was the Southern Baptist Convention on the Faith of the Fathers. Southern Baptist Conference on the Faith of the Fathers. Yeah. That's right. And then it got, I think we did switch it to Founders shortly after that. Okay. Yeah, so this could have been the Fathers Ministry Conference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they make a blow for patriarchy. <laughs> okay, so you guys meet together in 1982. Um, I think I remember also reading in the minutes there was an insistence that it be closely connected to a church or several churches to be under kind of the authority of that pillar and buttress of the truth. What was the landscape, what was the culture like in the Baptist and broader evangelical world at the time? I mean, why did you see the need there? I'll, I'll say a little bit on that. Um, in, 19, in 1977, I was a Presbyterian who became a Baptist. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and... Um, um, and, and so when I became a Baptist, I looked for churches in the southeast. I was in the south in Alabama, and I couldn't find more than a handful of what appeared to be Calvinistic churches that uh, were trying to preach expositionally the whole counsel of God and so forth. And the only ones I knew about, one in Birmingham, Alabama, and one in Houston, Texas, and... Um, and then there was Trinity up in Montville, New Jersey, and Grace Baptist in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I, I couldn't come across much more. And, and I, I think about then, uh, there has to be, uh, we, we have to do something to teach Baptist churches and Baptist pastors uh, the sound doctrine and teaching that our forefathers had. What built the convention? Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and and so that was one of the things that moved me. There were just weren't many churches out there, and you, I, all that I ever found, I could count on one or two hands. I mean, in the whole country, there may have been more, but that's a, that's it was fascinating. And now, in God's kindness, um, when people ask me where can I worship when I go here or there or elsewhere, there's multitudes of of churches that people can go to and be taught sound doctrine and holy worship and and uh, the pursuit of godliness and Christ-likeness. Mm. Amen. Praise God. We have to remember that this was uh, beginning to happen just about three years into the conservative resurgence. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of uh, theological awareness on the part of Baptists at that time and, and some very good theological awareness because we were beginning to realize that you cannot have any kind of evangelistic mission or missionary organization without the gospel and you can't have a gospel unless you it's according to divine revelation because this is about things that we could never 
invent on our own. And so the whole issue of inerrancy and the conservative resurgence was in sort of in the background. But, but that, that, uh, that movement also began to focus attention on historic theology among Baptists because one of the things, one of the charges that was made was that inerrancy is not the historic position of Baptists. The historic position is the uh, right of private interpretation and liberty of conscience. And so this uh, inerrancy deal is something that's a late 19th century Princetonian development. And so that, that motivated people to, be, to begin to uh, search Baptist life historically, theologically, to see where did this doctrine of inerrancy come? Did Baptists really not believe this? And so that prompted people to think theologically. And when you think, I mean, historically, and when you begin thinking historically about theological issues, you're going to run, run across confessions of faith and other theologians who believe the doctrines of grace and begin to see that there is a whole lot more in Baptist history than, than just trying to protect inerrancy, which is no mean thing in itself. It's very important. Uh, but that dynamic was what drove many people to be willing to look at confessions of faith, to be willing to look at people like J.P. Boyce and, and John L. Dagg, who were before the, the Princeton theology. Well, Dagg, well, Dagg was, but Boyce was a product. But others, even like as back far as John Smith and Thomas Helvis and Benjamin Keach, and all of these who affirm very strongly the inerrancy of Scripture. And so once you begin to see that there is a historic and confessional connection that should be uh, accepted within contemporary Baptist life because it can be demonstrated to be biblical, that opens the mind up to consider other doctrines. And I think that was something in God's providence that worked in the favor of some degree of receptivity for uh, affirming these doctrines, not just as something imposed on Southern Baptist life that was not native to it, if it, had, if it had been that, then I think we all should have left. But because it was not imposed, but was actually native to the beginning of Southern Baptist life, then that gave a deeper motivation for all of us to uh, begin to uh, set these things forth with vigor and with energy and with confidence and to be willing to engage uh, people in the, in the uh, rediscovery of these, of these doctrines. Tom, you wrote a book with uh, Russ... Uh Bush. How old are you now today? <laughs> <laughs> it's the miles, brother. It's yeah. the miles. Um, uh, Baptist in the Bible, in which you guys did a lot of retrieval work in that to demonstrate those kinds of accusations just were unfounded. And that book was significantly instrumental in providing doctrinal and historical firepower for the continuation of the debate on inerrancy. And in 79 up until about 85, 86, it was a pretty open question what was going to happen in the convention. Nobody knew you know, if, who was going to come out on top in those debates. And, but with that, exactly what you said happened, and I'm a product of that as well. I, I was told not long after I completed my PhD that I was a part of a, an explosion of uh, doctoral studies on Baptist history and Baptist theology. And I mean, that's, that drove me to do that as well. And the more stuff that was uncovered and just made available, it, it put people back on their heels. I remember having uh, Donna's aunt 
was a part of the Texas Baptist Historical Commission, and she went to one of their annual meetings, and the leader of that at that time stood up. Somebody asked a question about Founders Ministries, or, and he said, so don't argue with them. said, they're right. They're right about history. Just don't even argue with them, you know? And that was, that was like eight or nine years into our efforts, which God used to provide an opportunity to have then the exegetical theological conversations. So you have this meeting in 1982, uh, decide that you're going to have a conference the following year, 1983. Where's that conference held? What was it like? It was held in Memphis, Tennessee at Rhodes College, which eventually became Southwestern, uh, Southwest College, I think. Uh, we considered Christian Brothers, which was a Catholic school, and they were very nice, but they were very nervous about talking to these Protestants about a, a conference on theology. And they said, you need to make sure you're not going to say anything that's uh, going to be an embarrassment to us if it gets out. And like so the we, Pope is the Antichrist or anything <laughs> like that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or that sacramentalism was a heresy and we had justification by faith and Martin Luther and all that. So we decided we probably couldn't do that. But uh, Rhodes was a historic Presbyterian school, uh, PCUSA, I believe. So it wasn't confessionally where it should have been, but they were very open to it. It's a, a beautiful campus. And how many did we have? 75 to 82 or I something? Think we, it was 110, wasn't it? Oh, okay. I went back and looked. There was a little over 100, I think, that actually showed up. Yeah. Okay. We were surprised there were that many. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, many that many Calvinistic Baptists. Mm -hmm. Well, well that were at least interested in talking about it. <laughs> yeah. It is amazing to hear you, Dr. Malone, talk about the fact that you could think of four or five Reformed Baptist churches in the whole nation and what the Lord has done in the intervening years. Yeah. So there's 110 attendees at this conference. Who are the speakers? Well, one of the things we did was this highly burdensome slideshow that I put together <laughs> and had someone narrate and people were getting up and leaving during <laughs> It was, You're going to learn history whether you want to or that's not. That's right. I thought it would be great. And, and I got all these long quotes out of 17th century Baptists and 18th century Baptists and had pictures of them on these slides. And Rob Ritchie was narrating it. Yeah. And it just went on and on and on. I th man, I was going to seal the deal in one meeting. But it was, that was, part was terrible. And by slideshow, you don't mean PowerPoint. No, uh, I mean, <laughs> you mean slides, little slides. slides. You put it in the thing, you stick it back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not, not people sliding down the aisle or anything <laughs> like that. It's these. <laughs> but oh. uh, did you do a paper on? Was it Mel or no? Ben Mitchell did a paper on Mel. Yeah, PH Mel. And did you preach on Romans seven? Yeah, and uh, the guy that you went, you just mentioned, McKay. Uh, J.W. Baker. Baker spoke. Uh-huh. Uh, he did. And then uh, uh, the guy that was with you at Mid-America. Mid -America. Jimmy Milliken. Jimmy, Jimmy Milliken spoke and Ernie spoke. And then who did the Romans thing? Uh, Romans 7? No, 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 Romans 9. That was Baker. No, no, that was, uh, he wrote. Sorry, pardon us. Journey, <laughs> so journey, journey in Grace. Belcher, Richard Belcher. Belcher. Richard, Richard, Richard Belcher, Belcher was there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. it was great. 
Man, yeah. when he got into Romans 9 and he was, he was, I mean, he made it so logically tight. There was no way to escape. What he, took he, out, was, he took out his pen to make an illustration. I remember yeah. about, um, you know, if you get a letter from someone and they wrote, wrote it with this pen, you don't go to the pen and say, oh, what a wonderful pen. Thank you so much for the letter you wrote me. You're a great pen. I love your pen. So you look to the author, the one who has written the letter, talking about God's saving people through instruments. Yeah, yeah. So during this yeah. conference or after this conference, I mean, what was the feeling amongst you men who originally had decided to start? Did you think, okay, this is a good thing. We really need to continue this or, well, let's give it maybe a couple more years, see where it goes. I think the immediate response was, yeah, we got to do it again. Yeah. We were, it had really gone way beyond our expectations and the enthusiasm for it had been good. The feedback was good. The, we thought the results were good. The speaking was good. And so we were just, all game to do it again. I think the second year, didn't J.I. Packer come? Was he the second year? Or? I don't think it was the second year. Okay. No, the think, think second I year, I think, is when you, we were in the science building and uh, the air conditioning went off and you preached sinners in the hands That's, of an angry God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In 103 100 degrees. degrees. <laughs> Special effects. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the, the first year, I just remember euphoria. I, just with looking around, seeing those people, I didn't realize there were that many people on the planet who believe these things. And then singing, I never heard singing like that in my life. Uh, mm -hmm. And can it be? I just broke down. I wept. Mm -hmm. I wept. It's tremendous. I'll never forget it. So you decided to hold these conferences not just because of Calvinism, but you had other concerns as well when it comes to Baptists. What were some of those other concerns? Expositional preaching, uh, healthy church life, regenerate church membership, um, law and gospel. Uh, we, you know, these things, confessionalism, things that we've maintained through the years, really emphasizing, were there at the foundation as well. So it was basically uh, just real Christianity. We, we we wanted to see that taken seriously. The sufficiency of Scripture was already very clear in our minds that yeah. we were fighting over the inerrancy of Scripture. It was a fight worth fighting. We needed that. But the inerrancy of Scripture is not enough, and we, we recognize that. And so sufficiency became an issue for us early on as well. So you continue to hold these conferences through the years, always in Memphis? Did you end up moving them around to different places, different churches? Yeah, an interesting thing happened uh, with that. We had Timothy George come one time. Timothy George at that time was teaching at Southern Seminary. And he came, I don't remember what year, maybe four or five, something like that. And uh, I drove him back to the airport after, at the end of the conference. And I, I remember we were riding together and he said, I've just had a wonderful time here. He said, this hasn't been anything like what I was told it would be like. He said, you guys are really nice, you know. And the, <laughs> he said, you know, and he, he said, no, I just appreciate the spirit. So the doctrine is great, but the, the spirit is just unusual. And so that knit him together with what we were doing. And it was shortly after that, I don't remember when, that he went to Birmingham, Sanford University to establish Beeson Divinity School. And somewhere after that, he invited us to come to Birmingham at Samford, which turned out to be a much better venue for us for many years. Uh -huh. I, don't, I can't remember the year, though. So um, back in the green room, you guys were telling a story about somewhere along the way, uh, a young man came in with VHS tapes and wanted to, <laughs> wanted to show you VHS tapes. So you guys gave him 10, 15 minutes to, to kind of give a testimony. Who was that? 
Yeah, there was uh, somebody came up and said, there's a fellow here that has a box full of VHS tapes. You probably have to go to the History Channel or something to figure out what that is. But it was a predecessor predecessor of what we now have as MP4 movies. And uh, so I went and talked to him. And you know, he said, yeah, he said, you know, I've been, I'm a missionary, so I've been in Peru, so nobody knows what I'm doing, so I've got these tapes that just kind of tell the story. He said, could I have like 10 or 15 minutes just to introduce me and, and my ministry, what I'm doing? And so in talking to him, we thought, okay, you know, this guy sounds legit. So we gave him 10 or 15 minutes. He passed out his VHS tapes. Uh, it was Paul Washer, you know, which uh, none of us knew. And that's how the first time we actually got to meet Paul. And he was telling his story about how he had tried to go through, I think, the IMB mm-hmm. and wasn't allowed. So he just got some people to support him and took out to Peru and uh, got involved in the jungles for eight or 10 years. When he came out, you know, he was had pastors, churches planted and being trained and was looking for people to join in with him. And who are some of the other men that were involved along the way? Well, we did have Packer. I think he might have mm-hmm. been our first uh, outside speaker. Al Martin was Al Martin. Al, Al Martin was the second yeah. one. That's right, the second conference. Second conference. He, he preached three messages on sanctification that remain some of the best teaching on that that I've ever yeah. heard. Yeah, it's outstanding. Yeah. It was at the second conference, wasn't it, that folks got introduced to R.F. Gates because we had a had someone drop out that was lined up to preach. Yeah, I think R.F. did preach early. And we brought so R.F. in. Then, and then just, we had him preach every year, yeah. sort of near the close yeah. on, yeah. on the doctrines of grace and evangelism. evangelism I mean, he had a different yeah. text every year, and it was just He was a vocational amazing. evangelist. Uh-huh. Yeah. I believe we had Walt Chantry. We Walt did. came Still in early. At, at, uh, third conference, I think. Yeah, yep. something like that. Yeah, then J.I. Packer, uh, John MacArthur, Roger Nicole uh, spoke there. Who else have we had? David, David Miller. Miller. David, oh, Miller. David Miller. Yes. Miller. The Lordship of Christ. Yeah. David Miller, uh-huh. when I invited him to come speak, uh, and I don't mean any disrespect in trying to emulate his voice because I, I, there's hardly anybody I respect more than him. But I said, uh, you know, uh, David, we'd love you to come and speak on this topic if you'd address this topic. And he said, Tom, you can ask me to speak on whatever you want me to speak. And I will speak on whatever I want to speak. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and nobody was disappointed. Yeah. We had Air Hulse. I was there. Jeff Thomas. Uh, uh, Martin. Jeff, Jeff Thomas is speaking at the Deep South Founders Conference next weekend. Okay. He's flying over yeah. into... Yeah, so we've had got to give us some wonderful You'll speakers. You'll be there too. Will I? <laughs> That's what I heard. Wow! I better find out about this. I don't, <laughs> it's in my hometown. It's in Brandon. But. So, but it wasn't just conferences uh, that founders began to produce. It was other things as well. Well, we decided we needed a journal, and um, I was finishing up my dissertation in '88, '89, uh, and so I just I didn't have any bandwidth for it. But uh, Don Whitney agreed to do it. And so I think, I think was Don, I don't know if Don came on the board at that time. He might have been. I think he might, maybe yeah, was on the board by that time. And so Don agreed to do it, and we were working back and forth. Ernie was uh, very heavily involved in that. And I forget what the theme of that journal was, but it was, a, it was an arduous process to get it out. It was so difficult to get it out. We decided we couldn't do it. 
And this was this was the successor to one that was started there. Wicked Gate. Wicked called the Wicked Gate. The Wicked Gate. The Wicked Gate that Robert Martin. That's right. And Ben Mitchell. And Ben Mitchell. Yeah. And how they didn't print many, like six issues or eight issues or something. Yeah, about eight or ten issues. I still have some of them. Yeah, I did back then. But that was something that when Bob Martin left Fort Worth, Ben took over and he did that for a while too. Yeah. And I think I probably did too and didn't press on with yeah. it. <laughs> well, after, in 89, I graduated. And after that's when we started the Founders Journal. And uh, Ernie and I worked on that for many, many years. And Tom now is the editor of that uh, journal. Such as it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, know, we've been, I don't know how long we've been doing it. What is that? Not, 20, 32 years, 33 years, something like that. Um, yeah. We need to get on social media some pictures of some of the original hard copy <laughs> journals. No, they, because I designed the covers and everybody's embarrassed. <laughs> With Founders Ministries today, they say, please don't show anything that you designed in those early days. So, because uh, I designed they're vintage. the covers. They're vintage. They look it, great. Yeah, it's funny. I, I hear people today talk about how they love our cover art on our books and such. And uh, it's a constant reminder to me that for years there were people telling me, you really need to get somebody that knows what they're doing to do this. Uh, just like, it's not that hard, you know, you can do that. So. We still have a few of those titles. We do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah you, we do. you can tell the difference. <laughs> um, so what came first, the, uh, the Founders Journal or Founders Press? The Journal. Okay, so when, how did the Founders, how Founders Press start up? Founders Press started because of um, a, a connection with Mark Dever. Mark had preached a series of sermons called uh, Marks of a Healthy Church. And um, he was wanting to get them published. And so I took, And Mark was on the board for a while. He, he was, was on the board. Yeah. I think this might have been before he was on the board. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But uh, anyway, I took them and edited them. And the first thing Founders Press ever published was Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever uh, in a little booklet form. And then after that, the next one was the... Uh, from the Protestant Reformation, the Southern Baptist Convention, what mm. hath uh, Nashville to do with, or Geneva to do with Nashville? Now, that was a cover that you... I did design did that. Design, and that one's a good one. That one's a good one. It's I coming like back in style. That's yeah, right. that's the thing, yeah. That's right. Um, do you still have copies of the, the original Nine, Nine Marks? I do, yeah. Wow. And so you started that and then had the small uh, book on, on Southern Baptist Convention in the Reformation, what were some, some of the major first titles that came out after Richard that? Barcellus was the first significant title that we did, uh, Decalogue, uh, Defense of the Decalogue mm-hmm. on New Covenant Theology, trying to engage New Covenant Theology. And we did that and learned a ton about printing with that uh, because there was uh, this new thing was coming out at that time called print on demand. You know, it was a, mm-hmm. and desktop publishing changed the printing industry. And we got in on, on the early, side of that, uh, I, remember, I remember I was ready to buy a computer and software, um, it's an 8088 or something like that, IBM computer with that kind of processor in it. And we had a guy in our church who was an IBM salesman and a man in our church, Ernie, had actually said, whatever you need, I'll pay for it. Just we need to start doing this desktop publishing stuff because I talked to him about it. So I did all my research, got all that ready. And I go to Ed because he said, I'll give you anything for 50% off, you know, my cost. So I go to him, I said, man, I want to do this, this, and this. And um, he said, well, you know, okay, think about it. Well, I went around to three different computer stores, had appointments back in those days, and said, here's what I want to do. I want this machine with this printer, with this software. And none of them could make them work. 
of the three appointments. And one, the third guy finally told me, said, look, there's a pastor, an assembly God pastor, who's doing what you want to do. Why don't you go see him? So I made an appointment with him, saw it working, went to Ed. Ed said, well, okay, before I order it, come to my house. So I go to his house, and he has a little Macintosh on his desk. And uh, it's like a little toy. You know, it's what it looks like. And he said, this is what we do all of our desktop publishing with. <laughs> he said, my boss has got one in Atlanta. He keeps behind a locked cabinet uh, because, you know, we're IBM people. But he said, this is really what you want. So that's what we bought in IBM, went into that, never looked back. And that's how we got into it. Wow. That's crazy. Well, it is crazy. <laughs> um, okay, so Founders at this point has a, a journal. It has the publishing house. It has you're doing conferences um, all the time stirring the waters and stirring the pot and being troublers in Israel. Um, pushing the Calvinist issue early on, uh, which people in the Southern Baptist Convention didn't really take to initially. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Baptist world's reaction to the doctrines of grace that Founders was promoting? Well, after we had our first conference, the, a lot of the Baptist papers heard about it, and so they wrote, <clears throat> or some of them wrote articles about it, and they explained Calvinism to the people. And it was typically what you could understand a Baptist state, uh, an editor of a Baptist paper who didn't really understand what was going on, but he just represented it as anti-evangelistic, anti-missions. This is the thing that Baptists came out of, and it's a, there's this group that's trying to revive it, and this kind of thing. And then they began to send, they began to send reporters to actually attend the conference and report on what the conference was, was like. Uh, uh, and <clears throat> there was a, this was the, the first part of what developed into the Calvinist, non-Calvinist controversy that went on for five or six years, which now has, uh, has died down, I think, uh, but nevertheless was very intense for several years because it, it uh, involved people who had been working together with the conservative resurgence, and now there is this fissure coming between Calvinism and non-Calvinism. So books were published on either side of this, and uh, it was, it, we somehow managed to maintain fraternal relationships, I believe, in that, but it was an honest theological discussion that developed out of it. And so I, I think that overall, that controversy, what happened in the Founders Conference, the misrepresentations, then the anti-Calvinism or non-Calvinism, it made, for a while, it made Southern Baptists much more aware of the importance of theological discussion. Mm -hmm. I think that it had a healthy effect to make people think about these issues and realize that you have to settle these questions on the basis of honest exegesis and you have to include in that a, con a confessional component. Uh, what have other people thought about this? How have other people interpreted these passages of Scripture? Uh, and so the controversy, the opposition was actually good for what we were, we were trying to do because it sensitized uh, many more people uh, to the fact that there are theological issues that, that can affect Christian life, can affect the way in which you do discipline in the church, uh, affect your understanding of what regenerate church membership uh, is and affect evangelism. And so it, it began to broaden out the scope of what was at stake in theological reflection. Somewhere along the line, I don't remember the year, uh, I had the idea of a building bridges conference where you bring Calvinists, non-Calvinists together and just, just try to you know, give a point, counterpoint and engage and, and talk about those things. 
Did you want to say something? I was going to say, and that was amazing because they actually let us have it at Ridgecrest. Ridgecrest, yeah. I called Tom Rayner with the idea, uh, who at that time was the head of Lifeway. And actually, I emailed him, I think it was, and he called me. He said, look, I'm on vacation, so I don't check my email typically, but I saw your email. I love this idea. He said, the only thing I want to add to it is got to get Danny Aiken at Southeastern Seminary involved. And so the three of us got together. I went up to Nashville. Danny came in, and we sat down and had the plan. We'll, we'll have you know, seven, six, seven presentations, have a Calvinist present one and non-Calvinist present the other side of the issues, like irresistible grace, unconditional election, total depravity, you know, limited atonement. And uh, so I was saying, well, I, don't, you know, I can list out the Calvinist guys, and why don't you guys get the non-Calvinist guys? And it was, it was really interesting. All the non-Calvinist guys they wanted to get were fine with me. You know, they were, they were more Calvinistic than not Calvinistic. And I kept suggesting guys that were really strongly opposed to Calvinism. And they said, no, not him. You know, not him. <laughs> so uh, the conference turned out pretty well overall, but it was costly for those guys because of their association with founders that uh, they would work so closely with us in that. But it, the, it was the large, at one point, I think it was the largest or very large uh, online download because it was one of the early days where you could listen to it from the internet if you downloaded it and they, they had to upgrade their server several times. One of the persons who spoke, we had, <clears throat> we had those presentations on either side and then we had some just preaching. And one of the persons who, who preached uh, did Jeff Noblet preach? Yes. Jeff Noblet preached, and he has this, the True Church Conference now, and he was sort of, he was the Calvinist side. And then they, the non-Calvinist side was J.D. Greer. Right. But yeah. when, uh, when Danny asked him if he would preach at this conference, it's going to be Calvinist, non-Calvinist, and J.D. said, which one am I supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, which, yeah. uh, which is a testimony to how, how much theological reflection was going on yeah, and, right, and how right. many of these sort of points people were buying into as, as legitimate expressions of theological truth. Yeah, it's, Ken Keithley was to do The Irresistible Grace, and he wound up doing something on Molinism. Yeah. And uh, Greg, uh, philosophy professor, I've forgotten his last name right off the top of my head. But anyway, he did basically off the top of his head. Well, okay, if we're going to talk about Molinism, let me give you our Oh, oh yeah, I know who you're you know? talking about. And yeah. it was just so Sharp, good, yeah. and it, it provided wonderful context. We had panel discussions, um, and then there was a book that came out of it, too. Broadman Press published a book of those papers that is still available. And one of the questions that was asked one of the panel members was, well, where do you stand on this? Do you stand on the Calvinist side or sort of the, the Arminian side? And you, and you remarked to someone sitting beside you, it said, listen to this. He's going to say, I'm a Baptist. And that's exactly what happened. He said, well, yeah. I'm on the Baptist side. <laughs> and the, the man said, well, that really is not very helpful. We want him to Tom <laughs> Aspel, mind reader. Yeah. No, it just wasn't my first rodeo. So. <laughs> well, so it seems to me that there was, again, this is before my time, but it seems to me that there was a point in which there was a distinction that was made between Calvinists and then there's the founders Calvinists. Now, what, from my perspective, looking at it from after it's happened, a lot of that seems due to the fact that Founders was explicitly confessional. And as you referenced earlier, that, that emphasis upon law and gospel. Um, I think New Covenant theology was kind of a new and upcoming thing with, amongst the Baptists. And 
founders had really kind of taken a stance and say, no, you know, we believe all Ten Commandments and we're going to follow the confessional Baptist approach. Is that, was that the kind of the distinction that was being made between Calvinists and then founders Calvinists, or was it something else? Hmm. Something else. <laughs> now, um, that may have been part of it, but a lot of it was, was just the denominational realities. Yeah. And there was a, lots of pressure being put on people who um, either were in denominational leadership positions or aspired to get into leadership positions in the denomination. And the idea of being a Calvinist, you know, was when people were saying things like, uh, Freddie Gage said, there's not a nickel's worth of difference between a Calvinist, a liberal, a heretic, and I forget, you know, four or five other things. I mean, that's just kind of the attitude that was there. Uh, and I could give you a lot of other stories. In fact, I've documented some of it in, in writing in the past. Um, and so if, if you're a Southern Baptist pastor or aspiring to be a leader in the denomination, to have that kind of animosity against you from some pretty heavyweight churches and, and pastors in the convention just wasn't going to be helpful. And so what happened is uh, there began to be this narrative of, look, you're not against Calvinism. You're against the founders kind of Calvinism. It's the founders kind of Calvinism you need to watch out for. I mean, you know, we're all Calvinists. We're, you know, we're not Arminians, so we're all Calvinists. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that was just kind of a denominational ploy to provide a little bit of space to keep the guns from firing so rapidly at, at people in those positions. Yeah, that seems to me, um, again, as somebody who for most of this time has been somebody on the outside looking in, to have been kind of a position that Founders has often taken. It's kind of, uh, you know, second law of throwing or third law of motion that to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. If you can push off of something to launch yourself forward, uh, well, that'll, that'll put you there, but you're pushing off of something. I think Founders often was that thing. And so we see it um, more recently with some of the social justice stuff. When By What Standard came out, there was a lot of cry and hue against uh, some of the things Founders was saying. Uh, but so now the things that Founders is saying are pretty, those are pretty common things to say, even within the convention, the Southern Baptist Convention and broader Calvinistic reformed circles as well. And that's not at all to, to complain about Founders' position, but I think that that has been a reality in Partially because you men have seen the truth and you've taken a bold stand on the truth and you said, I don't, I don't care about positions in the denomination. I don't care about, you know, what people are going to say about me. I'm just going to speak the truth on this issue. Founders was for a season the whipping boy to deflect from the growing interest uh, in Reformed faith in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so as these guys were being raised up uh, and it was being discovered that they were reformed, they, they embraced the abstract of principles and things like that. They would, they would use this dodge. Well, yes, I'm a Calvinist, but I'm not a Calvinist like the founders are Calvinists. And I remember the first conversation I had with, with Al Mohler as the incoming president of Southern Seminary. I called him to congratulate him when he'd been elected and uh, told him who I was. And he said, he said, well, I want you to understand something. We're not trying to recreate 1845 in Louisville. And I thought that was an odd expression of his because it told me, though, he had an understanding or misunderstanding of who we were. And that's what we've had to wade through for years is people already being told, here's what you are. Now, here's the odd thing. Here we are in 2023, and conservative guys uh, who we've been in alliance with to try to uh, once again have a conservative resurgence in the convention will say to us, well, you, that's what you Calvinists are like the guys 
driving the convention off the cliff. And we're having to say, no, we're Calvinists, but we're not Calvinists like the guys in the denomination right now that are, that are doing the crazy things they're doing. We're historic, theological Southern Baptists. So we've come full circle in some sense. One of the issues that <clears throat> I think became prominent also was confessionalism. The emphasis we had on being governed by a confession of faith and the Second London Confession and arguing that the abstract of principles that Southern was actually built on the Second London Confession because it was the Charleston Confession of Faith, et cetera. Uh, and so, but confessionalism has become, became something that was very important with the rewriting of the, of the Baptist faith and message, seeing the importance of language within certain uh, elements of that confession. And so again, confessionalism is something that is not an absolute truth in itself, but it does give a witness to the way many people in the past have understood how you interpret scripture on certain doctrines, and it can be informing to you in your own uh, exposition of scripture and can uh, set forth a, a very clear statement as to what you believe the Bible teaches. Well, reaction against that was Baptists have not been confessional, Baptists have not been creedal, etc. just like Baptists have not been inerrantists. Right. Uh, and so that led to more theological and historical study about uh, confessions. And so confessions are something that now are very important. In many churches, you'll say we are by the... Uh, 2000 Baptist faith and message. That is our confession of faith. Some churches are writing their own confessions of faith that uh, take into account these, uh, these doctrines. Uh, one of the things that now I think is becoming more prominent is the confessional stance of local churches, which is, I think is a very healthy mm -hmm. development. Yeah, and I, by God's grace, uh, Stan Reeves put the 1689 confession into modern English and founders publish that. And, and that's consistently one of the most widely distributed pieces of literature that we produce. I don't know how many tens of thousands of copies, maybe hundreds of thousands by now, of that confession have gone out through founders. And uh, it's just really neat to discover now people who know what that confession is. I had professors at Southwestern Seminary that did not know what the 1689 confession was. And you know, now uh, it's, it's just wonderful to see that. I think that is a healthy thing. It's been from the beginning. I mean, one it's even a phone number now, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Phone <laughs> number. Right. it's in our phone That's number. Your <laughs> and it's a cup. It's a coffee cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, the confessionalism, the uh, emphasis on churches and pastoral ministry and law and gospel. I mean, we've done other things, but those have been kind of like right at the sweet spot for founders. And by God's grace, he's enabled us to maintain that and to see ways that those issues must be applied to changing societal, cultural uh, situations. But we, we haven't deviated from that. So final question for you, gentlemen. I mean, we, we see where the Founders Ministries has been over these past 40 years. I mean, what, what is your hope for the next few years for Founders Ministries, or the next, the next 40 years of Founders Ministries? Where would you like to see the ministry? You have two minutes. None of us will be here. I don't think that the basic impetus of it needs to change. We are committed to absolute truth, the inerrancy of Scripture, to the uh, foundational element of confessionalism. We believe the Second London Confession is an accurate uh, representation of the, the doctrines to which it, uh, that it addresses. We find within the, the confession a, a, a good hermeneutical principle of synthesizing Scriptures into doctrines. You can look at the doctrine of creation and go all the way from Genesis... Genesis to Revelation. I've got to illustrate Genesis and Revelation. 
uh, go all the way from Genesis Revelation and see that there's consistency. So there's a synthesis. There's a hermeneutical synthesis that goes on in the development of the doctrines. And you can read every article carefully and see the way that is done. And then there's a synthesis between the doctrines themselves. We see how Christology relates to anthropology and how Christology relates to the atoning work of Christ and, and justification and how uh, the Trinity relates to regeneration and, and so forth. So, so there's a synthesizing of doctrine. So I don't think there's any, any one of us that would want to change any of those things and to, for them to be central because it is from these truths then that we're able to move and to engage issues that arise in culture. We have to be very we're careful about that. It's not knee-jerk reactions, but when we are able to investigate and see that there are th cultural issues that are arising that are be beginning to be adopted, and if we can work through it and see, well, this, this is against the doctrine of justification. This is against the doctrine of forgiveness. Uh, this is a compromise to the doctrine of the Trinity or something like that. Uh, we can still have that exegetical confessional basis uh, without making a social issue our major, uh, our major emphasis, but deal with the social or the cultural issue in light of the commitments that we have to absolute truth as expressed in Scripture and as credibly uh, set forth in the confession. I'd, I'd like to add <clears throat> to that that in, in the original days where this was all conceived and started movement toward uh, Founders Conference, Founders Ministries, uh, way back then, somewhere in my notes, I had that uh, a slogan that we had about it was ministering to ministers. We, we saw that um, the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ is where the action is and, and what affects um, the nation, what, how it evangelizes uh, people, and the key to that was making sure that pastors and students understood um, a Baptist theology of, that, that is historical and biblical and, and starts to build churches upon those truths that hadn't, people hadn't heard for decades and decades. And, um, and as we saw doing that, the various areas came up in the conferences of worship and, and evangelism and church discipline and all these how, preparing men for the gospel ministry in your church and different things. So that, I think that emphasis still is at the heart of it that we want to um, help equip men um, who are faithful men to preach the gospel faithfully, to uh, teach the people of God to, to love God, to keep his commandments, to be holy, to be Christ-like, so that their lives will affect um, everywhere they go in the world, in, in every situation that they're in, and uh, that they, they have the revelation of Christ and they have the revelation of his commandments, which are to love God, love your neighbor, love Christians, and love your enemy, and, and see that spread out into the world through godly lives. Um, years ago, I preached a sermon and did some research, and found out that every Christian in their lifetime uh, interacts with um, 10,000 people. And um, from that, I was thinking, if, you know, in a small church uh, where there's not that many people, um, can it do anything for Christ? Yes, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
that they reach and to have a good sound understanding of the gospel, to live a godly life that attests to it and to, and to be the light everywhere they go in their jobs, school and uh, government and whatever else they, um, they are in. This brings glory to God. And, uh, but Tom, maybe you should have the last word on that. I wanna say something before we bail out. 1987, we were thinking about this and we started the Southern Baptist Founders Youth Conference for the generations to come. The idea behind it was we had pastors calling us saying, man, can you help us? We're sending our kids off to these camps that are getting manipulated and decisioned and things like that. And so we started a youth conference, not knowing exactly where it would go, but the idea was let's do this long enough so that churches begin to be filled with young people who understand the gospel, who grow up uh, with a proper understanding of the gospel, come to faith in Christ. And so even here now at this conference, years later, there are adults with families who cut their teeth on the Southern Baptist Founders Youth Conference. It's been a great mercy of the Lord for us to see over the years. Now, Trinity Baptist Church in Mamigo has taken up that task. Mamigo, Kansas, you want to talk to Tony Mattia about it, he'll tell you about it. But it's still a very vital part of helping churches. You know, we want to recover the gospel, reform local churches. And one of the ways you do that is you get to the, to the children, the young people, so that they breathe the air that their pastor breathes and it becomes life to them and not something unusual. So I thank God for that. That's just a little, it's kind of a different kind of ripple for us from the, from the regional conferences, but the Lord's blessed that through the years and I just want to give thanks to him for that. Tom? Yeah, I, man, I would love to see ten thousands of churches that are taking seriously uh, the Word of God, the centrality of the gospel, uh, unashamed, joyful, willing to just preach God's law and God's gospel without any fear or embarrassment. Um, and it's it's happening. We're, we don't. I don't know if we got tens of thousands yet, but uh, that's happening. It's happening in a variety of ways. Founders is a small part of that, but there are other people, other em emphases that are taking place that are so good. So um, we're, we're in that situation where Paul Washer said yesterday, you know, I'm going to wind up in a gulag with an Assembly of God guy who refused to bow, you know, to the uh, cultural elitists. And and uh, I, I feel that same way, too. Um, we, man, we're in a massive war that is coming against the church to try to just cancel us out so that mm -hmm. we don't even have opportunity to preach. And we need every available gun. That's right. And so if you don't dot the I's and cross the T's with me, but you're willing to keep your rifle pointed the right way and keep it loaded and fire away. Uh, Symbolically speaking. Yeah. Uh, so far, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's what we need in order to proclaim the Lordship of Christ, to live under the Lordship of Christ. And, and that's happening. I mean, I've talked to guys here, people here, who are from churches, Assembly of God Church and uh, it's a Methodist church, but, you know, and it, welcome. Amen. You know, we, we will have our disagreements and we want to be able to discuss those fraternally, but we agree on so much more. Let's link arms and go forward. Amen. Well, praise God. Praise God for his work through Founders Ministries with so many different churches and recovering the gospel and, and the Reformation of churches. And thank you, men. Please give these panelists a round of applause. <laughs>